Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. For this episode, we're joined by Carlos Araya, the superintendent at Belle Reve Country Club outside St. Louis. Yes, Belle Reve is on a lot of people's minds this year because it's hosting the 100th PGA Championship, but we thought Carlos would be a great guest to have on to not only speak about some of the work surrounding the PGA Championship, but also how to manage people and some of the different things they're doing at Bell Reeve in terms of personnel management. Ultimately, this is a people business, and your success is going to depend on getting the most out of your people. And Carlos and the Bell Reeve team have certainly found ways to accomplish this. Well, Carlos, thank you so much for joining us. We know you're really busy this year, and it's awesome to get you on the podcast. The first thing I want to ask you, when you have a position like the one you have at Bell Reeve, what percentage of the job is personnel management? Oh, Guy, thanks uh, again for having me as well. Uh, I I would tell you that the majority of the, the decisions that I make are personnel management every day. I would say 60 to 65%. The other 40 to 35% depends you know, on the golf course forecasting, kind of uh, setting the path for the guys and the team. But I spent so much time on just their development, kind of what their interests are, what are the challenges that they're facing on the golf course, some of the things they're not uh, too keen on. And there's a lot of feedback back and forth between the staff and myself on what's happening, you know, getting a pulse of the golf course, and since they're always on it. So it's the best sounding board other than member feedback to really understand your operation in the course. I've had a lot of people tell me that the higher you get in the business, the less it's about turf and the more it becomes about people. Have you found that the case? 100%. I, 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 tell, I told someone that I've known a long time, they, they called and wanted to see how I was doing and say, well, how much are you on the golf course? And I'm on it a lot. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm on the golf course a lot, but it's mo- mainly to just check on things, just kind of see something that may, may be going in a different direction than we anticipate and just getting connected because it's easy to get distracted but i would tell you all the time is about everything else it's the business it's the three things i talk about to the team i'll share with you it's turf business and people so the turf i mean i think i've said this in other podcasts but i'm going to repeat it is it's expected so good conditions are no longer about how 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 good is the golf course i mean it's expected to be good it's expected to be world-class and a championship caliber all the time and then the business side of it, your, how, do you, how well and what's your acumen on the financials and how in tune are you with uh, the entire operation of a club. And you have to have those things really good. And back in the day, that wasn't such a big deal. And now the third piece with the different generations in the workforce and the challenges with labor, it's people. So you spend a lot of your time doing those two things, the business and the people in, because the turf's now expected. So less and less about the course, more and more about business and people. And I would think with the course, it's easy to determine what success. You kind of look at it, and you know that it has that look. You've been doing the right things. And with business, you have spreadsheets and ledgers. So you kind of know success on that end. How would you define success managing people? That's a good question. I, I think that success managing people is really, you can feel it in the culture of your team. I think you're successful when you're able to have differences and are able to work through those in a professional manner. There's a lot of times that, you know, when you have uh, – teams that are very competitive and are very astute to turf and want to do better and want to do great and are just here to gain the experience to move on. There's a lot of that, you know, back and forth banter, but just being able to work together and have a kind of united front when you leave the office and everyone's kind of aligned and working towards the same goal. I think that's one big big measuring stick for me when uh, measuring our success as people. Obviously, you, you want to see 
anyone that works uh, with you or for you over the years do well in their own uh, venture, whatever, whether it's a golf course superintendent, whether they take a sales role or whatever the journey is. You just want them to be successful in what they do, be passionate about it, and just really have a, a great life beyond whatever they're doing. And that, that to me, is, is defining success. You're very passionate about managing people. You've spoke at the Golf Industry Show about this with Grant Murphy, who's at the National Golf Club of Canada. I'm sure you've read dozens, if not hundreds, of books about this. Where, where does that passion for personnel management come from? I don't know. I, 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 it's just kind of it's happened. I, I, I've always uh, talked with Grant about this a lot. I, I don't know where it started. I, I can pinpoint a couple of times in my career that it became more important, and um, it really gave me a focus on you know, the the individuals more so than just the jobs. So I was able to separate the two, and it's hard to do that when you're so production-based and so focused on conditions. But then you really, you really start to getting to know people on a team or a golf course that you're working on. You really start understanding that they're, they're human. You know, sometimes we forget that, and they have challenges in their lives outside of what happens inside outside of this prop, your property, and they have to work through that. So I, I go back probably 10 years when it really started, and I think – I have to give uh, great credit to my my mentor and best friend for that, for giving me books early on and letting me know that it's more about uh, individuals because the collection, the mower can't do it by itself. There's going to be someone there that's got to run it and has to make decisions, and they're going to make decisions. And the, the better you prepare them and you communicate and connect to them and you're passionate about them and their success and enjoyment in their workday, the better they'll do the job for you. So it goes back probably a decade, and I think it's grown. The more I've gotten into, as you mentioned earlier, getting away from the golf course, the more about people, the more passionate you become about it. And it's just something that grows with time. And I, I don't see that ever stopping, especially with the many challenges in labor. And I keep saying generational workforce, but we're really diverse uh, in golf course teams. I mean, there's just so much diversity. And if you're not passionate about getting to know people and what makes them really about themselves and why their behaviors are a certain way, it really can get lost into just production. And before you know it, you're just someone that no one wants to work for. And I never want to, I never want to be that person. Now, there may be people that don't want to work for me now, but I don't want to be that person without the intent to focus on their growth. You mentioned your mentor. I'm assuming you're talking about John Cunningham, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm on his email list, and he's sending out articles about people and leadership all the time. Is that something you're doing too with your team or is that something that you plan on doing in in the future and how nice is it when you receive an article from somebody and maybe you pick up something that that helps you yeah uh you you mentioned him by name but john's kind of a unique person i, I there are very few people tell people all the time you're either going to love him or you're going to hate him because he's going to make you better he's going to make you he's going to challenge you to be better and uh he's got a harder goal he'd hate for me to say that but he wants people to be better and he's always sending people information and i think it's from the place of making people understand that they can be better, they can do better, and it's it's about the journey. It's not just so much about this moment you're trapped in, um, whether it's you're having issues on a green or you're having issues with members or whatever it may be. But, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that just like anyone else who has someone who's mentored them, you, you mimic certain things. I don't send communications at that level. I think I'm more, I would say I'm more one-on-one -on -one internal. I think that over the time I think I will. When my, as my network grows, yes, then I would definitely send out more communications. And you mentioned also Grant. I mean, I sent communications to Grant, who you think about it, he's in Canada. It's a lot of fun to, to be able to send the, to a lot of different diverse people. But it, it's going to grow for me, I'm sure, over time. What type of people work at Bell Reeve on your golf course maintenance team? How would you describe them? How diverse 
are they? The type of people at Bell Reeve, I think, are passionate. I mean, they, they love the golf course. I mean, some of them have been here over 25 years. I think we have probably one of the one of the most shocking things in joining this team so over two years ago is the tenure. I'm not used to having staff members that have been in a club for 25, 30, 35 years. I mean, that's a long time on a golf course operations team. Um, so they've been here a long time. They've seen the changes, and they're invested. I mean, more than half their lives. Some of their their only jobs have been at Bell Reeve, so uh, that's all they know. So they leave, live, breathe, love it, and continue to do it over and over again. And most of them will retire and or finish their working life at Bell Reeve, and that says a lot because it doesn't happen in a lot of golf courses. And maybe it does. Now, maybe I'm naive, but I've not experienced that in my 22 years working in, in the golf course industry like I, I saw here. Um, the makeup of the team is pretty diverse. I mean, I think we've counted probably about eight different countries that we have represented on the team. Um, a lot of Midwestern guys and gals on our team. So there's a, a unique group, and we have Ethiopians, we have Hispanic, we have, you know, we have it all. And it's it's really cool, but I think everyone has that now in, in golf operations. Um, I just think our, our uniqueness is that, it's been a long tenured staff, and we've sprinkled in a lot of great youth, and it's been intermixing really well. What is it like being the new guy and beginning to manage someone that's been there for 25 or 30 years? A lot of people have to do that when they get a new superintendent job. What is that like being the new person coming in and have to, have to manage somebody that was there well before you arrived and who may be there well after you leave? Great question. I, I think for me it's just like I said earlier, it's getting to know them, you know, really having the intent and really appreciating the years of service. Because when I look at it, gosh, I won't, I, I hope I'm at Bell Reef for 25 years, but that puts me at 65. I mean, some of these people will work at, here longer than I've ever worked any place combined. So it's, to me, I appreciate their passion and long tenuredness and the fact that they're here and just telling them, talking about that. So what, what made you stay? You know, what are the things have you seen and getting their feedback and, through their life and eyes, seeing how the course has changed, and then you again when you have when you live a life where you have intent and you you're trying to connect to people, and from the very moment I got here with the task and the objective to create operational excellence, um, that's what I've tried to do: get to know them. And as I, as they've seen that, then they've easily gravitate back, and it becomes kind of a a partnership and getting to work with each other. That's how I look at it. I always look at it as a partnership. I, I never look at it that someone's working directly for me. We're working together. You just mentioned operational excellence. How would you define that, and what is it like trying to strive toward that every day? <laughs> the great part is striving, right? Because if you ever get there, you're two things: you're lying, and and you're and you're just not really looking at it objectively. But I I, I knew when I got to Bell Reeve that. I had to do everything I could to make sure that we hit all our standards that were defined for us and do everything we could. And excellence to me is doing everything you can to prepare people to do that, whether it's training, whether it's communication, whether it's going through, okay, we're not doing this as well. Hey, by the way, that standard's just unreachable. I mean, being honest again, hey, we've, we've set that out as a club, and we really can't meet that because of whether it's a weather condition or the fact that we're just not staffed enough for that. So I would just say that operational excellence is really being in tune to what's expected of the club, uh, having clearly defined standards, having a staff that's trained to achieve those, and then refreshing and going through those and reviewing those and being honest about how you're going through that. Um, I would tell you that we we started this probably last year. I want to say somewhere around 
uh, March, kind of measuring what our standards, what percentage of our standards we're hitting, and that kind of gives you an idea of where you are. And anytime you're 75 to 80 percent of what your standards are, you're doing pretty well. Um, and most of the time, that's kind of the range we, we we're in, and we'd like to get up in the 90s, and we'll continue to work to do that. I think one of the things that people don't understand about clubs like Bell Reeve is, yes, there's a lot of longtime loyal employees, but you almost have open positions on a regular basis, too. What is it like integrating new staff members with the people that have been there for 25, 30, 35 years? Wow. Well, it's the same, it's the same as me. You have to have the approach that you really want them to buy into the intent that that individual, whether it's a two-week-old employee or 25-year, is important and getting to know them and spending time getting to know them, getting to understand that they have strengths and weaknesses just like you do as a young professional. And your success is depending on that, understanding that first. Yes, the turf's important. Yes, what you've learned in school is important. But getting to know the staff, something they don't teach you at any school, is equally if not more important. So getting buy-in to integrating those individuals is great. And I have an example of that because we – we hired a new assistant last year, and um, he slowly integrated himself. And, yes, he has excellent agronomic skills, has seen a lot, knows excellence, been at some great clubs. But the more he's worked with the team and gotten to know the team members, the more they kind of the, go connect with him and the more they want to work for him and with him. So you could just see that happen organically. So I think it's just making sure that they understand that my leadership philosophy is a buy-in to it's a unit, and it, you have to do everything you can to connect individuals and not gauge them solely on, on if they do well on the job or not. A lot of people are going to hear your name, Carlos, this year. They're going to maybe hear you speak at GIS or hear you on a podcast like this or read about you and Bell Reeve in an industry publication. What would you tell people about Carlos Araya and the path that you took to this point? And it's certainly not the traditional four-year turf path. What would I tell people? Get to know me. Right, that's the first thing. Like I hear, I am telling you that you need to get to know your staff. So get to know who I am. Don't judge me based on what you see on TV or what you hear on the in the rumor mills sometimes. But get to know me is the first thing I tell someone. And um, when you get to know me, then you understand my journey a little bit, and then you can understand where I'm so passionate from. Um, a lot of things have happened in my life, personal and professional. Um, the mentorship I mentioned to you is ongoing. So I'm always striving to be better. I'm looking to improve our our industry, the business, the, the attention to detail and the things we do, like any other superintendent uh, that we've had it come through before me. And I think as far as my path and journey, educationally, I, I went to, I had no intention on being on a golf course. Um, my, my, my path was to be an engineer, and my father and my uncles were all engineers, so that was kind of a natural thing for me. And I was I started, and I did finish my engineering degree, and but I, I'm, I was on a golf course working part-time, and I absolutely loved it. I mean, just like many of you who are listening or or know about it, it's that adrenaline. You can't even you don't can't even explain it. It's almost like an addiction. You know, you just get on there and the smell of the grass and seeing the sun come up and the heavy dew and your shoes being soaking wet because you're raking bunkers. I mean, all that was awesome. And I slowly kind of worked my way through that. And as I was finishing my engineering degree, I decided that I wanted to be in turf management and I started a two-year degree in, in, at Indian River State College in Florida, and I completed that. And at that point, I became an assistant, and then natural progression through the ranks where I became a golf course superintendent. And then at one point, I was a GM for four years and then 
came back to be a golf course superintendent, and here I am hosting uh, uh, the 100th PGA Championship. It's a blink of an eye. It's kind of crazy. Does anything you learn taking engineering classes and studying that field apply to what you do now? Yeah, the spreadsheets, the math. I mean, there's just so much math and engineering that, you know, even even though it's been 22 years, I was pretty diverse in computers, so that's helped me quite a bit, and it's translated over. But as far as other than opening an irrigation box when I was probably in my early 20s, no. But, uh, you know, distribution boards and things like that, I'm, I can easily take those. I was building those in engineering school, and I was, uh, you know, shaping those things going out, how they communicate. But um, I've that's, that's so long past that, no, I can't use that. But I, and the other part that... Uh, while I was going to uh, engineering school was the human resource side and some of the communications that classes that I had to take that those, those definitely help writing skills even though you can I can always be a better writer I have a tendency to become long-winded as you can clearly hear and I also have a tendency to write a lot about nothing because I just want to write so um, I've had to try to take those they help clean that up but I've kind of fallen off a little bit but those are things that I translated into the golf course industry don't feel too bad i'm a professional train writer and i think sometimes people would say i'm writing a lot about nothing too carlos <laughs> but you mentioned computers and computer science how big is data and metrics to what you do at bell reef oh boy it's it's everything i mean every every decision we make um whether it's moisture management whether it's green speed whether it's you know we're, we're using the geotech technology now like many others have seen we're putting it on the drone um, I, I would venture to say it touches technology touches every surface in one way or the other here. It has been for a while. We've just grown it because of some of the unique uh, challenges that we're faced with and really try to use that to simplify it to connect to the membership, our leadership. So, you know, we're talking in a language that is kind of all united and everyone can understand data points a lot easier than um, the agronomic language that we use. Do you use any labor metrics? Absolutely. Are obviously the digital boards, you know, hum, hum, what percentage are, is a, you know, is going towards um, bunker management or greens management? Uh, typical things you see at clubs, and, and we also can see weaknesses in our kind of our trends, and it's just pulling those out of spreadsheets and graphs and talking to those and use those a lot to support our standards and kind of communicate with the green committee and leadership that here's kind of why we have a gap, um, here's some options, and just get their feedback on what they'd like to see and then make an adjustment and then move on. Last year at this time, your predecessor, John Cunningham, was going from his position at Bell Reeve to a general manager position at Aronimink. You went from turf to being a GM back to turf. How did working as a GM for a few years help you and what type of uh, advantages has that given you now as your career has progressed? One of the biggest things I think it gives you is it gives you a, a big view of the club operations as a whole. So you can understand when they're talking about revenue shortfalls or you're talking about capital and depreciation and all those things that you hear the words, but just understand how they actually flow through the financials. Every organization has a financial setup that's a little different with the same end result, but they do different things. And just understanding that gives me an opportunity to be in the room and, and talk through whether it's budgeting or just being with our GM, and he'll he'll and confide in me and talk about the cash flow, and just understanding how that you know having exposure to that and being responsible for that, I understand the challenges he faces, and much like we talk about our team and staff, I do that with I try to do that with our executive team, our golf pro, 
chef, um, clubhouse manager, et cetera, just go through, okay, understand what their challenges are and talk through some of the things that I've been experienced with. Not so much that they're applicable, but sometimes people just want to talk through it. And and that has given me a window to do so in, and in a way that I've experienced it. So I get it. And um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I think I'll, I'll never I'll never say that uh, I never want to be a GM, but I think that it's one of the ch- challenging most challenging jobs, even though I'm on the golf course side trying to manage turf in the Midwest. I mean, because there's just a lot of challenges that you deal with on the financial side, and, and the higher you go up in these big clubs, the more difficult it is, and they have a tough task, too. Before getting to Bell Reeve, you spent your entire career in Florida. What was that like, making the transition from Florida to St. Louis? St. Louis is right in the heart of the, the Midwest. I'm sure different people, different growing environments. What was it like making a big career move in the middle of your career? I, I always said I wanted to do something big. I would tell my wife all the time, I want to do something big. And she goes, what, what, what's big? And I said, I don't know, but I want to do something hard because, you know, I don't want to say Florida is, is easy because it's hard. I mean, Florida used to be a, a, a golf state that was you had the season in the winter and then the summertime you had your agronomics, people would go away, and then you could get ready for another winter season. Now it's 365. They're expected to have conditions all the time. Um, what I didn't recognize is how hard the Midwest can be because it's so erratic. And you don't have enough time on your podcast to talk about the last four or five weeks of winter we've had and the, the lack of spring and the lack of sunshine. And uh, But I think it was, you know, something that I wanted to be challenged with. And your question is, how, what was that like? I think it was eye-opening. I think um, it just shows you that, you know, there's a lot of diversity in our industry. Even if you talk about the Midwest, the guys that are challenged in the Northeast or in the Pacific West or and just West or in the out in the, in the desert. I mean, everyone has unique challenges, and if you just think you can manage a golf course because you've been in a region, you're sadly mistaken. You have to open your mind that there's challenges that you you have no idea what those are, and you have to really surround yourself with great people and be open to criticism and learning to really understand how to manage in, in these regions. We've all seen the pictures on Twitter and even on the news. Yeah, it's been a kind of a nightmarish uh, late winter and early spring, and you're, you're part of the country. Where are you at right now with getting the golf course to where, where it needs to be? We're recording this podcast in mid-April, and you certainly haven't had PGA Championship weather yet. <laughs> yeah, well, um, the sun came out today. That's always a good sign. I mean, there's 70 degrees, so we'll have some good weather the next couple of days and then back in the 30s. Um, so, I mean, where are we? I think we're positioned properly considering all the weather. The guys and gals have worked really, really hard to work through the different challenges. I mean, you can't you can't do anything about Zoysia being dormant. You just have to be patient, and you can't force it. And that's one thing that you learn in the Midwest is you got to let it happen naturally. And when it starts growing, it's going to take off, and it'll be a beast. But it's just changing our schedule agronomically, positioning things, you know, tightening our windows, really watching soil and temperatures and, and making adjustments as we need to. And, you know, a lot of that's happened and will continue to happen, I think, by I'll roll the dice and say I think by late May we're going to be starting to get off the runway and heading towards the championship with some good momentum, with some better weather. Hopefully it's dry and not as hot in the Midwest. Hopefully this trend of cooler temperatures continue through June, June and July, and that'll really position us well. What does hosting the 100th PGA Championship mean to your team and your club? 
when you're in it, you don't, you're not thinking about it as much. But when you step, like we had an executive meeting yesterday, and you take a step back and you say, "Wow, we're really going to host the 100th." Well, that's pretty spectacular. When you put it in context, and you look at what you're you're about to do, I think you, the words of honor, you feel very honored and privileged to do that because. It, it is a major championship, and only a select few, even the volunteers that will be on the ground, it's the 100th. I mean, not many people are able to say that. And 101, you know, is not 100. So it's just, it's a, you know, it's the centennial. So it's a big statement uh, to be able to do that. I think our club feels the same way, and there's just so much championship legacy at Bell Reef that it's fitting that it's here. Um, I think we all would wish that it, was, it wasn't in August, right? But, I mean, that's what it is. So... Um, I think honored and privileged and just excited about it and just working really hard. And I think that, you know, I've been told over and over again, enjoy it, enjoy it. But it's hard to do because you're so you're in it. You know, you're just your head's down. You're trying to get your head up. You're trying to look around and educate your team and prepare them. But, uh, you know, it's tough to do that. Belvery has been around since the late 1800s. It's on its third location. Uh, your current location is hosted two previous major championships, what type of motivator is history to everybody on your team? I'll just say it. The guys uh, we're watching, we all had to kind of get together for the for the Masters this weekend. and We had this, we have these couple of hashtags about our, our culture, our movement. You know, we Prestige 365 is something that you'll see a lot from us and led by legacy. And the interesting part of when the last pup went in and Patrick Reed won the championship Everyone looked around. So we got two more left. You know, we got two left, and it's like, okay, I don't know if that puts it in context, but that's pretty. That puts it in context for us. Like, okay, we 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 got something big coming, and it's only a two more two more events, and then it's our turn. What is it like managing Zoysia Grass in St. Louis? Not a lot of golf courses in your area have made the move to Zoysia yet. I'm expecting more will in the future. What can you tell people about that type of grass? It's fickle. It has an attitude in the cold, and it's mean in the summer. So, I mean, it's, it's, I don't want to use any words to get me in trouble, but it's up and down. And, I mean, it's an unbelievable playing surface when it's active. I mean, when you have winters and springs like now, it's just kind of dormant. It's there, right? They, people want to play on it. just doesn't have any mood for recovery. Coming off Bermuda, uh, all the cultivars, other than the new Latitude 36 I've managed and, and managing some that overseeded with rye and poa, I mean, I've – Zoysia is unbelievable. I mean, I've been on bent grass. It's the tabletop. But as far as for the everyday player, the conditioning, etc., I mean, it's a great surface. You can be a higher height. You can be a lower height. You can do a lot of great things with it. It can withstand the management, and it, it, it shows and plays really well. Sometimes you don't have to work as hard as you do on Bermuda, but, you know, I, I think it's a great surface. I, I really have enjoyed it and hope to continue to enjoy it for a long time. Hosting a major championship is a gigantic sacrifice for the members of, of a private club like yours. How busy are you going to be up until the point you close? W- w- what is it going to be like in May, June, and part of July around Bell Reeve, and how much demand is in the on the golf course in a year like this? Well, typically in a year like this, there's a lot of demand. Well, I think what, what's happened because of the weather, we have pent-it-up demand, right? Generally, we have a, an outing during the Masters to kind of kick off the the golf season, so to speak, quiet, soft opening, if you if you will. Well, we don't have that. So when the weather turns to a more favorable outdoors, everyone's been indoors for so long, so they just want to get out and play. So now they want to get out and play, and then they have guests, and then all the, the stands and everything's going up. So the fence is up now. So it feels like, yeah, there's going to be a major championship here. So 
So there's a desire. I don't know what the percentage is. I know the volume's high. The challenge that we have, I have, is to lead them to ensure that we protect the golf course enough that it presents itself really well and is at championship conditions in August. That's a delicate balance. requires a lot of communication, a lot of transparency, um, a lot of data. And if you do all those things well, then you can, you know, you live with the results because you know the effort by the team and the membership is there. Maybe you're not disappointed, so I might have to rephrase this question. But when I was putting together some of my notes for this podcast, I was going to ask you what your thoughts were about missing May by one year. But from the sounds of things, May probably would not have been a good scenario this year. Well, yes and no, because anyone who's from the Midwest or who is or is managing this area would tell you that it's a lot easier to get the bent grass in championship condition in May, and you could do a lot to make the zoysia playable, presentable, and great. August is going to be just a bear. I mean, it's just we're gonna we're gonna be gritting, and we're gonna do everything we can to hold hold the steering wheel straight all the way through whatever weather comes our direction. Um, I would tell you we were initially disappointed. I still would tell you that we are, but the cards are what they are. So it wasn't ever really in our radar. I kid about it all the time. I'd love to have it in May. What would we do different? We'd be preparing those greens for four weeks from now, hosting a championship. And now we're just really conditioning them to absorb some, some light golf traffic, some heavier golf traffic, and protect them during some extreme weather events that are typical in the Midwest. So initially, to answer your question, disappointed, but it is what it is. We're going to be, we'll be ready for August. The PGA Championship, in my mind, is the most laid back of the four majors. I remember last year at Quail Hollow spending some time in the maintenance area, and everybody was having fun. They were busting it and getting the work done and making Quail Hollow a tremendous uh, playing surface, but they also had a lot of fun doing it. What type of vibe is going to be in your maintenance area during the week of the PGA Championship, and what can people expect from your team? (laughs) Well, I would say the same vibe. I mean, I think that Everyone I've talked to, whether it's a USGA or any event, everyone seems to have fun. Even big PJ Tour events, everyone there's an appreciation for the volunteers and sacrifices that are go into the preparations. Um, you have to be again for us. We, we have a lot of work to do, but we also want to be sure that people leave understanding the culture of our shop and our operation at Bell Reef. And what is that? And that's just exactly what you're saying. We work really hard. We're professional but we have a good time and we care about each other. And when you leave here from for, from the 100th as a volunteer or if it's a, a media credentialed individual, you're going to be able to say, wow, that is really unbelievable how they work together. They put uh, the time in. They put tremendous effort and forethought, but they also care about each other. And caring about each other is having fun and laughing because life is too short. You have to laugh a little bit. Even when things aren't going that well, you got to be able to find the humor in it and plan through it, but you got to have fun, and uh, we kid around all the time. It's going to be fun August 6th through the 12th. We, If it's a typical St. Louis event, we'll be swampy, and if uh, we're lucky, it's a little drier, but either way, we're going to have the smiles on. We're going to put a heck, heck of an event and host some great people here. Well, Carlos, we appreciate you taking some time. I know it's been very busy, and we can't wait to get to St. Louis and see what type of fun it's going to be at Bell Reeve. Congratulations on everything you've done leading up to this point, and good luck with everything that follows. Thank you, Guy, and I look forward to seeing you.